Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Isabella Alexander, author of Copyright and Cartography, History, Law, and the Circulation of Geographical Knowledge, published in 2023 by Hart Publishing. Dr. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Uh, okay, well, I'm a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I mainly research in the history of copyright law. I started thinking about this book when I was just finishing up my first book, which was uh, based on my uh doctoral dissertation and I was uh, living and working in Cambridge and my PhD in that book was on the history of copyright in books in the 19th century. And so I was just finishing that up and uh, a um, someone sent me a link to a talk that was happening uh, in Cambridge at Emmanuel College um, by a um, someone who, Lawrence Worms, who had been researching into the map trade in the 18th century and thought, uh, both of us thought, oh, this would be an interesting, you know, there's a lot of scholarship about copyright in books, uh, but less a scholarship on the other subject matters of copyright. So maps was something that, that no one had really looked at that much at all. And so that seemed like an interesting area to explore. And at the time I thought, oh, I couldn't actually go to the talk, but I thought that's an interesting area and maybe I'll look into it and write an article on copyright in maps. <laughs> and 12 years later, I've written an entire book on it, um, which also the only reason the book is is in the world now is because I actually cut out a lot of the material uh, that I was going to use because I thought otherwise the book will never be finished. But I just ended up, I guess, thinking, uh, going down a real rabbit hole because I realised that maps were not just um, a different kind of copyright work. There was a whole lot of um, really fascinating map history scholarship um, that it was interesting to me to engage with. And so I enrolled at a, a course on history of cartography at the London School of Rare Books to try and get a little bit more background on this kind of other discipline, I guess, that I was not really um, familiar with at all. So I did have a, I mean, a history background, but not in the specific history of cartography. And I, I guess, as you probably know, the history of cartography draws from so many different dis- disciplines. So there's geographers, historians, political scientists, and they all bring, you know, their different kind of unique um, in insights and and disciplines to it. So there was kind of a lot to get on top of. And the more I read, the more I thought that they were important part of the story of the history of of copyrighted maps. And it wasn't just going to be a story about, you know, how did maps 
change copyright law doctrine, but how did copyright affect the map trade um, and the way that information is presented and, and circulated? So, yes, so that's um, how I got into that. And I would, because I was in the UK when I started the project, I was just going to look at Britain. And my um, PhD had just been on Britain, but I, when I just after I started, I moved to Australia. And I applied for funding from the Australian Research Council to continue the project. And at that time, I thought, well, since I'm applying to the ARC, I should probably have an Australian aspect to the book. And I thought that would bring a really important kind of imp maps are always, I guess, about empire, but having a kind of a perspective from the centre of empire and then the periphery of empire was going to bring something really interesting to the book. But in the end, I did have to cut out the Australian material and kind of save that for a future project because it... It was, I guess, one issue <laughs> too many, really, to try and hold together in a coherent book. So that is still a really interesting story that I want to tell, but it's it's not in this in this book. But um, yeah, so that's I guess the story of how I came to write the book. Yeah, well, I for one would definitely be interested if you write a a part two with the Australian angle. Um, and so oh, that's good you luck. mentioned. Uh, I was going to say there's probably also a part three because I do stop in at the outbreak of world war one um so there's another really interesting story later on <clears throat> yeah it's definitely a, a fertile field for further research um and so as you said the history of cartography draws on a lot of different perspectives um but the history of copyright is not a perspective that i've come across uh, very often in reading about that and probably a lot of our listeners who might have a geography background uh, probably haven't thought about that aspect as much. So could you give us just kind of a, a sketch of the development of copyright law in Britain during the period you're talking about so that we can then you know, connect maps to those developments? Yeah. So um, well, the period I'm talking about is a really long period. As I said, I kind of thought I would start at the beginning about the 18th century and then I went further into the 19th century and also backwards um, to see uh, what kind of, you know, to trace the prehistory. So the reason I started in the 18th century is the first copyright statutes were passed um, in the early 18th century. So in 1710 was the first legislation to regulate the copying of books Um and 1735 was the first act to to apply that same kind of regime to engravings. Now maps are engravings, but they weren't specifically named until a statute of 1767. So, but before 1710, there was still forms of regulating the book and print trade. And this was generally done through the use uh, throughout Europe uh, of royal um, privileges or privileges from the particular ruler of the state because in some cases the Pope um, also granted privileges. So this was a kind of a royal um, authority that people would petition for from the ruler to be, and they began in Venice in the 13th century, not about books um, particularly but just about any kind of technology. So if you wanted to bring a technology into the realm or into the city of Venice, uh, you could apply for a privilege uh, to be the generally to be the only person who was working that technology. So it was a kind of a form of protectionism, but it was very effective in Venice. It meant that it kind of became a centre of trade and technology. And eventually that was spread out to the rest of Europe and it began to be used to cover 
all sorts of things, you know, from playing cards to books and also maps. So map makers were using this instrument as were as were booksellers and printers to try and get an exclusive right for their books um, or their productions. And in the UK, this was also supplemented by another form of regulation of the book trade, which was carried out through the Stationers Company, which was a London guild. And it essentially controlled the book trade because you had to be a member of the Stationers Company to print and publish books. And you entered them in a red into a register. And the, the the stationers company worked also with the whoever the ruler was at the time to enforce a censorship regime that sat alongside the registration regime. So the king or the queen was interested in censorship, um, and the stationers company was interested in regulating the trade uh, and maintaining its monopoly. So they worked quite nicely together. Um, up until the end of the 17th century. And map makers again were able to take advantage of both of these regimes. Not all map makers were members of the stationers company. Some of them were. Um, and and some of them you could also ask a stationer to enter the book um, into the register um, as well. But by the end of the 17th century, there was a kind of a growing resistance to monopolies. Um, and there were monopolies like in the form of monopolies that a ruler would grant to a particular favourite or someone who petitioned them, as well as trade monopolies exercised by guilds like the London um, the Stationers Company. And this kind of spilled into resistance to these forms of regulation alongside um, kind of resistance to censorship and, and licensing um, attitudes to that were changing as well. And so there was this kind of con confluence, I guess, of influences that led to so the, the licensing acts, which kind of sat alongside the stationers' registration lapsed. And instead of renewing them, um, it was um, Parliament decided to introduce this new form of protection, which was which was a Copyright Act, um, which is known as the Statute of Anne or an Act for the Encouragement of Learning. So it's framed as an act for the encouragement of learning, but really it was an act to kind of appease the booksellers and give them back some power. But it was different to the system that operated before because you didn't have to be a member of the company. So you did um, you, you did have to enter a book in a register, but anyone could enter a book. So it could be the author of the book or someone that a, um, an author transferred their, their title in the manuscript to. So that was a big change. It kind of undermined the power of the stationers' company. The privilege system did continue. People were kept on using them, and it kind of, I guess, it dribbled out towards the end of the 18th century. Um, so then we had this regime that applied to books, and in 1735, um, under petitioning, a group of engravers led by William Hogarth petitioned for a similar kind of protection for engravings. <clears throat> So we had that regime, and then, as I said, in 1767, they were identified that there were a few problems with this regime, and an amending act was passed, and this time it explicitly included that the protection against copying would extend to maps, charts, or plans. So that's kind of, I guess, the, we're now at the kind of the mid-18th century, and we have a statutory regime in place um, that is, I guess, the foundation of modern copyright law, although, of course, it changes a lot in the intervening 300 years.
Yeah, and you talk about a few ways that maps didn't quite fit into the copyright concepts that might apply to something like a you know like a novel or a you know a textual book, um, and one of those has to do with authorship because maps were usually like team projects more so than you know your classic idea of a, a book you have one author you know Jane Austen sits down and writes Pride and Prejudice and it's her book you know from her own personal uh, creation, whereas maps would have a lot of people involved in that. So how did that affect how copyright got applied to maps? Well, it's interesting because I think the the map thing, if you think about it a little bit, it highlights um, a fiction that already existed. So uh, you'll hear people say, oh, copyright is about, um, and from the beginning has been about um, encouraging authors. But the truth is, I mean, I guess as I've, you know, sketched out before, it was really about protecting publishers or booksellers as they were in those days. So the people that provided the funding to 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 publish the books, authors might be the incidental beneficiaries. But is, I guess at least in the early days, uh, probably authors were selling their manuscripts outright. Uh, there may have been some people who were able to kind of negotiate something similar to the kind of royalty agreements we see today. But really, although the protection begins with an author, so it's the author who has the right, it's right from the beginning, it's the publisher who's exercising that right. So in that sense, a map, the the map is similar because the right would go to the map maker, who would generally be the person who brings together that kind of range of skills uh, and invests the money. So sometimes there's, there's some examples, I guess, of, of well-known map makers who were also engravers. So Thomas Jeffries is an example. But even those people don't engrave all of their own maps. And it's not just the engravers. So you need the geographer who compiles the information, maybe a surveyor, not always. The printer, even amongst engravings, there were specialty areas. So some people would specialise in engraving hills and then some people would specialise in the lettering. So, yes, as you say, they were always a collaborative endeavour, but the right was concentrated in the the person who printed and published the map, which was in reality the map maker. So it does, as I guess time goes on, um, particularly in the 19th century, as this kind of romantic, what's sometimes called the romantic ideal of, of copyright takes over this um, notion that I guess draws on romantic theory about the the author um, and their cent- their central role in, in creating a text. And maps sit uncomfortably with that as that idea takes over that that's, and so copyright is kind of mapped onto that romantic ideal of, of an author and, and their creative powers. So it's quite interesting, I guess, as I said, it wasn't really a tension in the beginning because although people talked about the author, it was understood that it was a right to protect the entrepreneur. Um, But later on, that kind of rhetoric about the role of the author does sit in tension with how copyright actually works in relation to maps because they don't just have one author, but the right tends to be held by the person who brings all of that, all of that labor together. Yes. Then another issue that comes up a bunch throughout the book is this tension between the idea of the map as like information that's useful for society to have out there. But then on the other hand, the 
the actual physical map as a commodity that somebody's going to sell and make money from. So what made those two ideas salient during this period and then difficult to reconcile? I think they're always salient and always difficult to reconcile, um, but you do see them emerging uh, over this 200-year um, period, partly because... Um, so I, because maps are um, works of information, as you say, but um, they're also valued as singular items in a way that, that a book is not. Uh, so you've got this kind of, yes, yeah, so there's the, the singularity, the uniqueness of the particular map that you've got, which has a value and, and people do all sorts of things with maps, um, only, you know, relatively recently use them to find their way around. Um, and then, um, so copyright, when copyright arrives, it allows, it drives up not only the price of the individual of the, you know, of it as a, as a commodity or a physical object, because now it's harder to make copies of that. So it makes the physical object more valuable, but it also regulates that right to make copies. So there's now a second right that can be um, licensed or assigned to a different person, to the, to the, the person who owns the physical object. And that's um, it's a tension, as I say, you don't see it with books because the value of a book is in, in the information that's in it and not in the particular copy unless it's a, a valuable first edition um, or, or created handmade object in some way. But maps are because they're, you know, the, the value is in the the hand labor of it. And in that sense, they're they're also like other artworks. And I mean, paintings and drawings were not actually protected by copyright until much later in the 19th century. And then it was quite controversial. Um, a lot of people said it was a completely inappropriate right to apply to original works like paintings. It should just be um, about, it's a, just a reproduction right. So it's for about a work that can be reproduced, that copies of which are valuable. So, yeah, so quite controversial. And I think what's interesting, I guess, is we're starting to see this again coming up as as a as an issue today with new forms of technology. So with things like NFTs, now people are trying to think of ways to create to make a, a, an infinitely reproducible article unique as an object. Um, so digital art, which you can have every copy of it, will be identical to every other copy of it. How do you create value in one object? Um, and NFTs are one way of doing that. So as I say, I think it's, you know, copyright created that tension and it never really goes away in, in works like this where the value is is twofold. So then could you talk about some of the work that went into compiling and creating a map in the days before we had easy access to GIS data everywhere and then how doing all that work influenced the way map makers would defend themselves in these copyright lawsuits that form kind of one of the major um, things that you draw on to show how copyright was was evolving there are all these you know lawsuits um, so how did the, the labor of actually compiling the map uh, come up in those disputes uh, yeah so the labor is always um, 
integral right from the beginning and you even see it in some of the early privileges where they talk about I've worked really hard on this you know the product of my labor and my expense and my investment so there's the labor and there's the investment and petitioning people petitioning for privileges in the early days will talk about those things so right at the beginning it's always seen as the value uh, is flows from the labor and the right is an attempt to capture that value and make it into something that can be transacted so there's that side of it and and as you say you really see it again coming out through the cases and one of the things I do in the book is I I use the cases as my primary source for discover, for thinking about for, for exploring how people are thinking about maps at the time and how they're trying to um I guess frame the labor in terms that the law will understand. So the labor has kind of two roles in relation to the map. So first of all, if you're in a in litigation, whether it's the 18th century or the 19th century, you have to start by proving that you have a right to the particular work in question. And one of the ways that people do that is the labour. So I didn't, you say, um, and there's also good kinds of labour and better kinds of labour. So because uh, the other thing is it was actually not easy to copy a map. It wasn't like, you know, you could just take a photograph of it or put it on the photocopier. Um, So even copying required labour. So you had to show also that you had um, expended the right kind of labour because merely making a copy, if all you've done is copy, um, you know, an, an exact um, version of the first map, that's the wrong kind of labour. So you have to, so uh, complainants, plaintiffs would have to show that they had expended the right kind of labour. So even if they had copied, and of course in the early days in the 18th and 19th century, maps were almost invariably copied from other maps, but you had to show that you had um, made corrections, improved the map, used a variety of sources, not just one source, that gave rise to the to the map in question that meant that you had a right that you could then assert against someone else, the person that you were saying copied your map in the wrong way, using the wrong kind of labour. So that was, um, and you do, you see that again and again over the kind of 200-year period that I'm talking about is how you capture that labour and then how you use that labour. Um, and then defendants would defend themselves by using the same argument and say, um, they might say, yes, I did copy it, but I improved it. Um, so it shouldn't be an infringement or I copied from it. That was just one of many sources that I drew from, um, or, you know, I expend a lot of my own resources on this. So yeah, so Matt kind of the, the labor comes in at, at every point. Yeah. Right. And then you have chapters about two major government institutions that were very involved in mappings, the Ordnance Survey and the Hydrographic Office. And how did their approaches to copyright differ? So they were really interesting organizations to look at because the um, the rest of my book is looking at the, the private map trade. And although private map makers are interested in or they say they are interested in the, and you know they probably are because you don't really go into map making to make a fortune um kind of benefiting the public with their improved maps the ordnance survey and the hydrographic office were organizations that were explicitly set up by the state with the object of kind of providing this useful information 
to benefit the public generally. So copyright from the beginning uh, creates a tension there. And with the Ordnance Survey, it's interesting to trace its development over the years and, and quite difficult. It's a really it's a really complicated story and there's um, some areas of the archives are really full and some are a little bit missing and there's problems with both of that, too much information and not enough information. Um, but I was able to draw on some really helpful existing studies to kind of help find my way through that. But what you've got with the Ordnance Survey is in their early years and it, and it starts out kind of following the Battle of Culloden and realising that the the highlands are a mystery to the occupying English forces. So they set up the Ordnance Survey to map that area to try and find out what it is. So this starts off with this military objective, but almost immediately private interests come into play um, and there's some kind of what we would guess call a public-private partnerships going on. Um, and, and also um, because we're now kind of at the tail end of the Enlightenment, these ideals about scientific knowledge and men of science are also interested in what can we learn about the land that we live in through mapping it and, and what kind of um, great techniques, new techniques and, and things like theodolites and fancy um, fancy technologies um, can we use to, to get to know this better. So always there's always this interplay of the scientific, the military, the public um, operating there. So how does copyright play in? Well, at first, the directors of the Ordnance Survey are really happy for their scientific information to be shared. And that is interesting. You'd think that would be intention with the military objectives, but by and large, with a, a few small exceptions of militarily significant maps, uh, which are kept secret, the vast majority of this information is made as available as possible through publications like the Philosophical Transactions. And then that starts to shift. Um, and also the other thing is that first it's just the Ordnance Survey is really just a survey. Um, and soon then they think well, we should make maps with this, but they don't have the expertise to make maps, so they need to bring that in from outside. So they need to turn to the, the private trade who knows how to make maps. Um, and they've got the, the networks and they know how to bring those things together to produce a map and also how to sell the maps because I think if we're going to produce these maps then we should sell them, which will be great for members of the public but also can help us to recoup some of these enormous costs. And that, again, now creates a tension because they want to sell the maps to recoup costs. How will they do that? They need a, um, you know, as um, monopolists always do, they need a monopoly right because otherwise they won't be able to compete in that market, particularly against the private map trade who know the market so much better than they do and very easily just take their information, put it into their own maps and undercut them. But so they need copyright to stop that from happening, but then copyright um, slows down the spread of the information. So the directors of the Ordnance Survey are always throughout history very conflicted by this. Um, and how to resolve it because they they all genuinely want the information to be made as widely available as possible, but they also want to sell their maps and Treasury gets increasingly um, shirty about how much money um, the survey is costing them and puts more and more pressure on them to sell the maps um, for a profit, which then leads to the information not being made available. So they... Um, 
have various compromises uh, in the Ordnance Survey. The Hydrographic Office has the same debate, um, but it's much more the public interest is even more compelling in the case of the Hydrographic Office because the consequences of an inaccurate map are fatal. So I think as someone says at one point, nobody is going to die if an ordnance survey map has a hedge in the wrong place, but, you know, lots of people will die if a rock is placed in the wrong place in the, in the ocean. So the, the hydrographic office people always push back much more strongly on this notion that they should be selling their maps, their charts, as I should say, um, for money. Uh, but they have the same problems. Um, because they want them to be disseminated. They want the hydrographic charts to be carried on every ship. Um, but how do they get them onto the ships and how do they make sure they're the most up-to-date versions? So they have a whole other aspect that they actually directly supplying the Navy. Um, but that's a huge, as you can imagine, logistical challenge, especially as they're updating their charts all the time. So they need to have a way of recalling the old inaccurate charts and getting the new charts out onto the out onto the ships. Um, and then what happens with the merchant marine who have their own kind of system of charts, which are called the bluebacks, which are a different kind of chart. They take the information from the hydrographic office, but then there's this kind of branding problem as well. If the blueback chart says on it with information from the hydrographic office or some refers to it, and then the blueback itself is wrong, there's a chance that people will blame the hydrographic office and this will lead to a loss of faith in the hydrographic office charts, um, which will mean that, uh, you know, have, again, serious consequences because people won't use them <laughs> and they might die um, or they might not buy them so then they have the problem with selling them to make enough money. So that's a, the copyright is really important in that dynamic, but it's, attenuated differently in the context of the state's involvement. Yeah, so and I'd also love to hear more about the research process behind this book. Like, how did you go about tracking down all of these court records and letters and stuff that you're using as your source material to tell this story? Oh, yeah, thanks um, for that question. I guess because I'm a lawyer, I started with the legal uh, record. And that is also a really helpful place to start, especially in the older period, because there's not that many other archives. Map makers don't seem to have, well, if they have archives, they've been lost or destroyed over the years. So aside from the, the amazing Bartholomew's archive in Scotland, there's not too many other kind of really good archives of, of map makers. So the legal records have a lot of information in it. And I tend to just... Um, yeah, so I started with the cases and um, the names of people that I knew. So in the 18th century, the, the map and chart trade is pretty small, so you can carry out searches um, at, the, at the National Archives. The Chancery records are searchable by the names of the parties now online, which is fantastic. And fortunately, 
um, it seems that most um, uh, well copyright cases were very um, chancery was a popular venue for copyright cases because in the court of chancery the remedy that you can get is an injunction and mostly in copyright cases what people want is the other person to stop doing something although there's not usually a huge amount of money in it um, so mainly chancery they'll at some point probably end up or start out in chancery to try and get an injunction and also maybe a discovery of documents which they can then use to take to one of the common law courts. Common law courts are much harder to search in um, and the finding aids are more complicated. So there could be like a huge treasure trove of, of cases in the King's Bench and the Common Pleas that I haven't found um, and that would be exciting and great. Um, so that was kind of for the legal records that's a painstaking process. There's also, especially as time goes on, um, newspapers are always interested in copyright cases. So there's often in the um, in the newspapers of the day, cases are reported. So you can do, especially as, um, you know, over the period of time that I've been working in this area, the digital finding aids and the online newspapers have become so amazing and the OCR is so good that you can search by names of parties that you think are likely to have litigated, but also just by copyright and um, and map and things like that. So sometimes you can find it in a newspaper and then go back and trace it through the legal record. Um, and then the institutional archives. So the Ordnance Survey has an enormous archive that's now held at the National Archives in London. The Hydrographic Office, um, I had to travel to Taunton in Somerset, which is um, where their archives are, although I believe that they're now transferring some of them down to London. Um, so, yeah, so those were the main archives I visited. Some of the um, 18th century chart makers have an archive in St Ives in Cambridgeshire and they were really great there, although they don't have enormous amounts of material. Um, and then I guess it's like most other historical things you kind of track track down bits of that learn you the clues that you get as you go and because I was also interested so I started off being interested in the cases but I'm also really interested in the people so for me this is a story about people's interactions with the law so once you've got a, a case and, and people in the case um, uh, then research into the the lives and the interests of, of the people involved so I could try and tell their story and see them as humans interacting with a system and running a business as well. So how did they how did they think about their business? Um, how do they think about, you know, their role in society as as people who had taken on this, I guess, important public task in lots of cases of creating and disseminating geographic information? Was that something that was important to them? Can you gather that from the traces that are left behind? Yeah, there's definitely some interesting characters in here and people that all pop up again and again involved in different disputes over the years. Were there any individuals that you, you know, particularly stood out to you as sort of interesting people or surprising people? Oh, so many of them. Um, you just don't have enough time. I mean, in the early period, the story of John Ogilby is a great one. And um, there's a few good books on him as well lately, which is this is fun to trace to trace down because he had such an um, amazing career as a dancer and a theatre owner and a bookseller before he became a map maker. And, yeah, someone like in the 18th century, John Hamilton Moore, who was obviously very feisty and 
um, kind of manipulated the system and had kind of strong allies and strong relationships and also enemies who would kind of print um, scurrilous rumours about him and paste them up around the town, um, including kind of the accusations he debauched his servant and he engaged in copyright infringement. So all of these things were kind of thrown together as as, as he was a generally bad lot. Um and and then yeah, the people that come out through the Bartholomew archive when you can see them writing letters to each other um and saying, um, I'm caught up in this dreadful copyright case. Um, and it's making me, you know, it's affecting my health. Um, or they're kind of gossiping about each other. Oh, they got caught up in this case. I feel, you know, so bad for them. They'll probably lose everything. Uh, so it just you get this sense of them as as personalities, which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that comes through well in the book. Um, so as we're moving towards the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh, my God, we would be here forever. Um, <laughs> I worked on this book for 12 years. So if I start um, calling calling people out, um, worried that I'll forget someone. Um but I guess I, you know, I really would want to thank uh, Lionel Bentley from the University of Cambridge, who kind of suggested he was the one who sent me the um, "Hey, this seminar's on" in the first place, and talked about it through the years and read large sections of the manuscript. Um, and also my colleague Tomas Gomez Rostigi, who's at Lewis and Clark um, Law School, who knows everything there is to know about how to research legal records on copyright at the National Archives and just couldn't couldn't have got even close to where I got without his help, which was amazing. Um, and then so many great people in the map history community, um, like Lawrence Worms and Catherine Delano-Smith and Matthew Edney, who were always really generous with their time and, uh, you know, answering my stupid questions about where to go next. Um, and... Yeah, all the people who read sections of the book and, yeah, <laughs> listened to me go on about it. Um, and also my family who put up with it for a long time, um, not always with good grace in the case of my children, I think it would be fair to say. <clears throat> yeah, well, then that brings us to our traditional final question on the New Books Network, which is what are you working on next? Oh, well, I guess I kind of started out with this as well. So I've got all my Australian material that I'm really excited to work up. So that's kind of staying on the map project. Um, and also, um, so looking at the history of engraving. So I kind of touched on that. Um, and it's an area that hasn't really been, I mean, when I started this project, I thought people would have written a lot about copyright in engravings in the 18th century. And there's really not that much out there at all. Uh, so now that I've kind of worked out how to find all of these cases, I want to go back and um, do that history. But it's that's much more intertwined with the history of art because, of, as I mentioned, William Hogarth was heavily involved. So I'm going to do that project um, with a colleague, um, Christina Martinez at Ottawa, who is an art historian and has that kind of expertise because, you know, it took me so long to get on top of map history and I just don't think I can also get on top of art history and there's lots of experts out there who already know more than I could ever learn. So, yeah, so a project on the history of engravings um, is my other kind of, yeah, historical project going going forward. Um, yes, uh -huh. and yeah, various other things, but those are the main kind of book projects, I guess. 
Okay, well, we'll be on the lookout for those when they come out. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you so much for having me. That's great. This has been a conversation with Isabella Alexander, author of Copyright and Cartography, History, Law, and the Circulation of Geographical Knowledge, published in 2023 by Hart Publishing.